You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. We're just going to jump in. I have a wife. She's amazing. She has this beautiful, long, dark hair. She's the mother of four beautiful children. She's creative. She went to Texas Tech, guns up. She's from Odessa. She's married to a pastor. Everything I just told you about my wife is because I know these things because I can see those things on her Facebook page. If my knowledge of my wife is limited to those things, then you could say that I'm probably not a very good husband, if that's all I know about my wife. You could argue then that I don't really know my wife if my knowledge of her is limited to what I see on her Instagram. If I were to tell you that I love my wife, and I know my wife because we are Facebook friends, then that's very insufficient and an incomplete relationship. Do you agree? Okay. Matt's listening to me. Great. Um, I've known my wife now for 18 years. I remind my mother-in-law of that, too, that I've known her for 18 years, too, and she's blessed for that. Um, Over these 18 years, I've gotten to know my wife in some really deep and intimate ways. We know things about each other that nobody else knows. I know what she likes, and probably more importantly, I know what she dislikes in almost every sphere of her life. And I say almost because I know her well enough to know that I should not get used to the layout of our living room or how our house is set up. Or like our bed's over here one week, and next week we might do a a quarter turn that way. Um, Like I could come home uh, from work one day, and I could literally be walking into her doing almost anything. Like one day she will be spray painting a ceramic duck that she bought from a thrift store. Uh, The next day she's designing a lake house on the computer. And then the next day, she's watching something British on TV. I don't, I just, I don't know what I'm walking into. But in 18 years, I have gotten to know my wife because she's my wife. I want to know my wife. I want to love my wife. I want to pursue my wife. I want to care for her, and I want to provide for her. In short, I've gotten to know my wife because I've had the honor of just getting to spend time with her and growing in my relationship with her. And that's really true of all of our relationships. We grow in our relationships by intentionally putting in the effort to grow in our relationships. It's true with our spouses. It's true with our kids. It's true with our friends. It's true with our neighbors. It's true with our our church people and the people that we're in community with. And ultimately, it's true about Jesus. You grow in your relationship with Jesus by spending time with Jesus. What we're going to see in our text today is that the Apostle Paul, the spiritual father of these churches who he's writing to in the region in and around Ephesus, prays for the believers in these churches. But I think the content of this prayer is what I found really interesting. 
Because it isn't, when I think about asking people to pray for me or when people ask me to pray for them, this is not what I usually think about when, when they say, hey, pray for me. I think I've been pretty honest with, with you all about my prayerlessness for people in my life. Um, and so again, this week, I was confronted with this. And I know I cannot be the only one that struggles here. So this is for all of us. So I want to call us all again to consider what's available to us as believers and really what a tremendous blessing we have in knowing the God of the universe intimately. So let's go to this text humbly and submissively and allow the Lord to call us to faith in him this morning. Let's pray first. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our need for you. Lord, and as the Apostle Paul prays for this church in Ephesus, I pray for the saints of Redeemer Odessa, Lord, that you would grow us in the knowledge of who you are. Lord, may we see you for who you are. Lord, may you reveal to us more and more of yourself this morning. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, help us to just delight in you, help us to delight in you this morning. Help us to rest in you who is working for our good and for your glory. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15, it says, For this reason, and I'm going to stop right there. Um, For this reason, the Apostle Paul says, For this reason, this reason that he's talking about is what he has outlined in the previous sentence, which we looked at last week. For this reason... Because of the position of the Ephesian church as predestined for adoption before the foundation of the world, called into a family and sealed by the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our faith now, our faith now, and our inheritance of an eternal life in the presence of Jesus. For this reason, Paul writes this next sentence. For this reason, because of our identities in Christ, our identities in Christ, Paul then begins another long sentence. Let's pick it back up in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul says, because of their faith in Christ for salvation... And because of their love towards all the saints, all believers in Christ, because of their love for the church, Paul then says he has a need to be thankful. The church in Ephesus, their faith in Christ has separated them from the idol-worshiping culture present during the time that this letter was written. And then their faith has united them together with Christ. And for that, Paul is thankful because they have been called together into one family, the church. He says he does not stop giving thanks to God for them. He is remembering them in his prayers. 
Paul, the pastor, is praying for his flock. And so that was real convicting for me. Uh, I, I have to confess, like, I don't pray for you all enough. Uh, I really do want to get better here. I need some accountability here. So you, church, I, maybe this is a blessing to me that uh, a lot of our regular attenders are gone. I don't know. Um, you, church, are free to ask me, Tanner, are you praying for us? I imagine as Paul writes this that he is praying for this church in Ephesus. I imagine on hearing this that the Ephesian church in the midst of a pagan culture by its teachings that are cultivating the spirit of fear in them that their hearts would be encouraged and strengthened knowing that Paul, their pastor, is praying for them. These feel like the tender words of a father saying to his child, I'm proud of you. These two verses overflow with praise to God and thankfulness for his people. So Tony Marita says, the first section of Ephesians is about the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And the second section, our text today, the second section is about the church grasping onto them. Praise and prayer belong together, and they are fundamental to the interior spiritual life of a Christian. A brief aside, if I may. We see the Apostle Paul praying. Paul is the greatest missionary for Christ that the world has ever seen, and he prays. Also in the Gospels, we also see Jesus praying. So if Paul and Jesus felt like the discipline of prayer was important, then why do we neglect it? John Calvin says the biblical reasons we should pray are these. In prayer, we learn to depend on the Heavenly Father. In prayer, we purify the desires of our hearts. In prayer, we're content with whatever it is that he provides. In prayer, we appreciate more deeply his generous faithfulness to us. In prayer, we enjoy without guilt the many gifts that he provides us. And in prayer, we're trusting him constantly to provide for our daily needs. You see, prayer aligns our hearts with God's heart. When we pray, we are communicating that we need God. But also when we pray, we are getting to talk to God. We're getting to talk to God, our Father. Think about that. This holy and loving, powerful God who we are so unworthy to approach has invited us to talk to him? When we pray, we are functioning out of a response to our salvation, out of a response to our identity in Christ, who has adopted us. 
We are praying in worship because not only is that our appropriate response to being saved, but we ought to pray in order to get to know God better. On the other hand, when we don't pray, we are communicating that we don't think we really need God or we don't really want to know God. We'll call on God when the situation feels dire enough or outside of our control. But for most of the other stuff in our life, we function like we can handle it on our own. But that's contrary to what the Bible calls us to. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing, which would indicate that there are good seasons and more challenging seasons in our life, and we're to pray in both of them without ceasing. And I'd also like to take note that Paul is praying for this church. His prayer is others-oriented. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit before we jump into the content of, of Paul's prayer. Paul is offering encouragement to these believers. Are these believers perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in a spiritual sense? No. Is God finished with this church, sanctifying them and growing them into Christ's likeness? Also, no. Yet, Paul is commending their faith. Paul is recognizing the good fruit that has taken root in them. Even though this fruit may not be fully ripened, he is still offering them encouragement. He is essentially saying, hey, keep up the good work. Keep going. Don't quit. This church certainly has areas where they need to grow in, as we're going to see later on in this letter. But the principle at work here is that it is much easier to be critical of one another in the church than to build one another up. Listen, we all need loving correction, all of us. So don't shy away from it. It's good for you. But also, sometimes we just need to be encouraged. Because sometimes we get weary, right? No, just me? Cool. Okay. Here's what I've noticed in my life. I deal with this a lot in both my personal life and my professional life. So I have four kids. I can see... My kid's doing nine things awesomely. That's a, that's a word, awesomely. Um, they, they're doing the nine things I really want them to do, and they're crushing it. And what do I do? I see the one thing that I know they're not doing the right way or well enough, and that's where I go. You need to improve on this, kiddos, instead of encouraging them in the nine while also trying to lovingly correct the one thing. Parenting's hard. Also, on the church side, I tend to focus on the areas that I really want us to improve on. These are all good and necessary things, I think, but I struggle to encourage and sometimes struggle to be encouraged. So again, I want to be held accountable to this. I'm not above the loving correction that I just talked about from you all. 
So let's encourage one another in matters of the faith and not be critical of one another. I think if you're here and you're a covenant member here, we are all committed to the same things. Growing in Christ for the glory of the Lord. We all want to grow. We all want to grow in our reading of, our understanding of, and our application of the word of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you should look, want to look more like Jesus. And this takes place with practice and discipline. And so develop your discipline of being an encourager. That takes practice. Especially if you are a historically critical person. I would challenge you in this. Try. Try to make it a practice of encouraging your brothers and your sisters. Ask the Lord for help. Ask your community group for accountability. Hang out with Chad. That's what Paul prays for this church. He's praying for this church. But what exactly is he praying for in them? Let's look at verse 17. Paul prays, starting in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul prays, and he prays for them, but he is not praying for them to be healed. He's not praying for them to be delivered. And he's not even praying protection from persecution from the pagan culture around them. Paul prays that this church would know God. That they would know God. That they would know God who has called them through his will. God who has called them to faith in himself. He says, would you, God, give through your Holy Spirit wisdom to know the revelation of Jesus given to us by his word? God, grow in me and in them the knowledge of who you are. God, help me and help them know you better. He prays that this church would have their, their hearts enlightened. So in Jewish thought and literature, the heart is the seat of thoughts and emotions. So he's saying, Lord, enlighten their hearts. Enlighten their thoughts towards you. Enlighten their emotions towards you so that they can know you and know the hope that they have in you and know the hope that you have called us to in Christ in order that we may know what the riches of our inheritance are as your church. Paul prays this for them because this is the most important thing in all of our life, that we would know God, that we would know God and not just know about God, not just know things to say because you sat in a Sunday school class, like you can regurgitate facts about Jesus. That's not what Paul is praying for. He is praying that you would know God intimately because God desires that. And God has made that possible through Jesus. And when, when we know God like that, we can then make God known in our life. 
Paul is praying that they would know the God of the Bible and not some cultural caricature about about God. Paul is praying that they would deeply and intimately know their creator and savior and know that they have been saved and adopted by God through Christ. This is the most blessed part of faith in Christ. When you pray for yourself and when you pray for others, are you praying that you and they would know God more? Or are you just praying for God to fix things? Listen, I don't want to minimize that we should be praying for God to to act and we should be interceding for one another. But if that's all we ever pray for, I don't think that encompasses the whole heart of God for us in prayer. Sin means we needed a Savior. Sin means we needed a rescuer. The curse of sin's penalty is death and hell and separation from God for all eternity. And that is a punishment that we have all earned. But Jesus came. Jesus came and lived the life that we were supposed to live, the perfect sinless life that we were called to. And Jesus died the death that we were meant to die. But now we won't have to. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And the cross and the resurrection now means that God is for us. And God will fight for us. And we have a God who will defend his church. And the cross and the resurrection also means that we have a God who loves us. And delights in us. And wants a relationship with us. And now because Christ is a has ascended and is reigning when all we do is pray for God to fix this or to fix that and we don't pray to know God more fully we are missing out on a tremendous blessing of getting to know our heavenly father we are treating God more like a cosmic genie or a cosmic slot machine than our heavenly father that wants a relationship with us Listen, Christ is worth more than our our box checks than the last fruits of our time. God is worthy of our worship and our devotion. So Paul prays for this church that God would make himself known to them and to his people and that God's people would know him. Brian Chappell says that praying for God to act is only half of the prayer needed for the spiritual nurture of God's people. We must also pray that human hearts would be receptive to God and his gifts. By praying this way, Paul recognizes the need for God's sovereign intervention and petitions him to act on behalf of his people by opening the human heart to see divine truths. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have a hope because Christ rose. Christ rose from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, and we're going to unpack that more in a second, but because of the resurrection, we have hope, and we should be filled with hope because we serve a living God who has made a way for us to get to know him. He has given us a hope and a promise and a future. And because of this hope, 
We pray that God's people would see this hope more fully in order that God would get the most glory and that God would get the most honor and the most praise and the most worship from our lives. All of that is due him. God is most glorified in us when his children are delighting in and are satisfied in him. I think Piper said that first. I can't take credit for that. Paul then talks about an inheritance in the saints in verse 18. So textually, verse 18 is hard to translate. Uh, Some commentators would say that we are Christ's inheritance, and others say that we inherit the promises of Christ. I don't see why they're arguing. I think both things are probably true. Not probably. Both things are true. We are Christ's inheritance, meaning we are God's promised blessing to himself. Christ has willed us to himself as his treasured possession. The other view is true as well. God has provided us riches in heaven in spite of our spiritual poverty. So regardless of how you want to interpret this verse, there's really no need to debate because either way, God treasures us. We are God's children if we have received the forgiveness of sin. God has placed such a high value on this broken community of sinners. And not because we are in and of ourselves lovely or valuable or worthy even, but only because we're his. He has called us to himself to make clear the immeasurable riches of his goodness and kindness by dying in our place for the forgiveness of sin. So let's unpack this wonderful truth a little more with the text itself. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? So Paul has prayed that we will know God better, and now he is praying that we will know God's power. What is God's power? First, it's for Christians or towards Christians. And this power is according to the work of God. And what is the work of God? Well, the work of God is that Christ has paid for the pardon of sin's penalty and has been raised from the dead. And not only that, but now Christ has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. The word power in the Greek, if you're into that, is dunamis. It's where we get the word for dynamite or dynamic. So God has accomplished all through his dynamic power, something we could not accomplish on our own. If you've ever like seen a movie where guys are mining coal, they're like blowing up these huge mountains with these sticks of dynamite. That's essentially what the Lord has done. It's blown up our hearts of stone and replaced it with a new one. Dynamite, dunamis, dynamite. Consider with me the cross and the resurrection. Jesus went to the cross in power. Jesus endured the punishment that was ours to endure for our sins in power. 
Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. The life we were called to live in wouldn't and couldn't and then submitted to the power of the Father for the punishment of the sins of the church on the cross. Jesus, through his sacrifice of himself, paid for our sins, past, present, and future sins in power. And he was the only one who could accomplish this, the only one who could satisfy the wrath of God against our sinful rebellion against God. He was crucified and he was buried. And then by the power of God, he was raised to life. And then in the power of God, he has ascended. And now in that power, God lives inside of us as the guarantee of our inheritance in him. Christ is reigning from a seated position in the heavenly places. And Paul is praying that we would know this power. And this is the position of Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. And this means that Jesus' work to us, for us, has been accepted by God. And now he is reigning in power. Look at what the text says, verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is ruling now and Christ will reign forever. He has been given authority to rule above every institution on earth. So this is not just a spiritual rule and reign. This is a physical, political, powerful, kingly rule and reign. A kingly rule of all things. Christ is sovereign. Christ is in control over all creation, both at creation and now and in the future. We aren't the consequences of some random events, but all history is moving towards this event when Christ will return and bring all things once and for all under his dominion, and we will experience the world as it was meant to be. We have a hope in a ruling and reigning king because Christ is risen. And this is power. And this power is for the church of God to experience and to display to the world for all to see. Christ is our head. We are his body. And as the church, Christ fulfills us in every way. More fully stated, one commentator says, it is God's purpose for the church, that the church should be the full expression of Jesus Christ, who himself fills everything there is. The church, the body of believers, is to be a representation, a physical representation of Jesus. We function as the body of Christ by the leading of our head, Jesus Christ. Christ is our Lord, and without prayer, you don't know him. You don't get to know him. And without the church, you don't get to know him either. This passage would imply that without prayer and without gathering with the body, 
then we're really hopeless. Think about it like this. When you consider the New Testament and the churches in the New Testament, there is no casual Christianity. It was not common practice in the New Testament for people to claim to be Christians and not involved in a church community. There was no like, yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm going to hit a few services a few times a year and not plug into the life of the church. The writings of the New Testament would suggest that that's lukewarm at best. And if you want to know what Jesus says about lukewarm Christianity, go check out Revelation 3. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, the church should be important to you. Why? Because Jesus calls the church his bride. Paul will expound on this relationship in incoming texts, but our purposes today, I want to end with calling you to consider that, your prayer life and your church life. We live in between the time of Christ's resurrection and Christ's return. Our role now as the bride of Christ is to make the bride as beautiful as possible for the return of the bridegroom. And we do that by making disciples. We're... We do that by pushing one another to holiness. That's why we require community attendance for our members, because we need each other. We need each other to call us to faith and holiness when our desires for the Lord are lacking. The role of the bride of Christ is to prepare herself for the coming of the bridegroom, Jesus. So we get to know Jesus through his word and through prayer. We get to know Jesus by and through the grace of the blessed Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are saved not primarily for our own benefit, which is good and praiseworthy, but we are saved in order to glorify Christ, which is our chief pursuit as believers. And then we get to serve Christ on mission with Christ by making disciples. Christ has called individuals to faith in himself. But there are no solo Christians in the Bible. You are called into a family to use your gifts to aid the growth and holiness and the knowledge of Jesus within the body of Christ. The church is the instrument that God has chosen to use to transform the world for his worship and his renown. Therefore, we get to know God as individuals to rest in him, delight in him. And then we get to know God by joining him, by serving the church in mission. So the question is, that I'm going to leave you with, is, is how are you doing? How are you doing in this? Do you ever pray? And when you pray, do you pray for people in your life? We rolled out prayer cards at the beginning of the year. I put them on the communion tables. On the back, there's a spot for you to, to pray for people, to write it down so you remember. Do you pray for people in your life? 
Because of Jesus' position at the right hand of God, we can trust that he's working. The struggles and sufferings in our life are not the final word for us. Perhaps they're there to strengthen our faith by causing us to be more dependent on the Lord and asking him to act on our behalf. Listen, when we pray, we need to pray in a way that isn't self-protective. Here's what I mean. I find myself a lot of times praying this self-protective, shallow prayers so that I'm not disappointed. But God's inviting us to more. God's inviting us to ask him for big things. God's inviting us to ask for the salvation of our unbelieving friends and family, neighbors, coworkers, and expecting him to act because he's the only one that can. God's asking us to pray and then expecting him to do great things. Do you pray like that? Another question I have for you is, are you committed to a local body of believers? Are you doing life with other believers? And are you allowing the Lord to grow in you desires for him in order that you can serve one another? Are you modeling repentance and dependency on the Lord? Christ treasures us. Christ delights in us. Christ has given us everything we need in himself. Christian, take hold of these promises to you. Pray that the Lord would help you know him better Pray that the Lord would grow your friends, your people in the knowledge of who he is. And then pray that the Lord would use you out of an abiding relationship with him. Pray for the Lord to grow you in your knowledge of him and he gives you good gifts. Christ is for you. Christ wants you. Christ sees you right where you're at. So pray to that end. Lord, grow in me a desire for you. Let's pray.